1: Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. I am going to use a word tonight that I do not use lightly, and I am not using it because it's my word. I'm using it because it's Mitch McConnell's. After the first time Republicans used the payment of our national debt as a bargaining chip back in August of 2011, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell told the Washington Post exactly how he saw our nation's debt limit, quote, what we did learn is this. It is a hostage that's worth ransoming. A hostage. That is how Republicans view this, and that is how we should too. Here's what happened five days after McConnell's hostage statement. This was a dark day for the nation's finances and for millions of Americans with a financial stake in the markets. The very same Americans who are still processing the fact that our country has lost its top credit rating. Here's the damage from today. The Dow down over 634 points. That's the sixth largest point drop in its history. The worst since 08. NASDAQ lost just about 7 percent of its total value. S&P 500 lost 6.6 percent of its value in one day. The president went on television at midday to reassure Americans, but the damage was done. The markets continued to drop while he spoke, and the damage continues. It's a bigger systemic problem with no real end in sight. That was what is now known as Black Monday. It wasn't our nation's worst financial crisis by a long shot, but it was an entirely avoidable one. In our entire history as a nation, the U.S. has always paid its debts. Because we are such a gigantic economy, loaning the U.S. government money has been a safe bet and a stable investment around the world for a very, very long time. If we all of a sudden stop paying our debts, that safe bet would crumble and the global economy would be thrown into chaos. So you would think that would mean there would be bipartisan support for making sure such a calamity does not happen ever. But no. In both 2011 and 2013, Republicans used that safe bet as a hostage and they threatened global financial collapse. Now, even though we never actually defaulted on our debt during those years, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics found that the sheer uncertainty created by this Republican stunt cost the U.S. economy as much as $180 billion and 1.2 million jobs. And now the Republican-controlled House wants to do this all over again. They want their own hostage crisis. Today, the United States hit its debt limit, and we can no longer borrow any more money. And so to keep the lights on, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been tasked with doing some creative accounting to move what money we do have from agency to agency and pay as many of our bills as possible. That should keep us afloat for a matter of months, but make no mistake, our country is teetering closer and closer to the edge of financial collapse. That is unless Republicans in the House agree to the completely routine raising of the debt limit. Now, we could talk about what Republican demands are, but at this stage, that is all fairly unclear and may continue to be for quite some time. To really understand what's happening here, let's go back again to what Mitch McConnell told The Washington Post in 2011. The full quote starts with McConnell saying, I think some of our members may have thought the default issue was a hostage you might take a chance at shooting." Most of us didn't think that. What we did learn is this. It's a hostage that's worth ransoming. The hostage metaphor here is apt. This is about people, people's lives, their money, the social services they rely on, their retirements, their literal 401ks. A few years ago, that economist at Moody's found that another prolonged impasse over the debt ceiling could cost the U.S. economy up to 6 million jobs. It could wipe out as much as $15 trillion in household wealth, and it could send the unemployment rate surging. Today, this was the advice that the New York Times gave to investors. At a minimum, as an investor, you will want to be prepared with ample cash holdings. Basically, make sure you've got some cash. Keep it liquid in case our entire economy and all of your investments in social safety nets like Social Security can no longer be relied upon because of a literal Republican stunt, a fabricated hostage crisis. The fact that establishment institutionalist Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy are so gleefully willing to embrace the fact that they want to hold the American people hostage is one thing. But someone should tell them that they are hostages now, too. I mean, they might not want to actually trigger a global financial collapse, but do they really control the party anymore? It took Kevin McCarthy five days and 15 excruciating rounds of voting just to win himself the speaker's gavel. The idea that Kevin McCarthy is in charge here is a myth. And now does, does Kevin McCarthy... Does the Speaker of the House really think this is a hostage that the most extreme members of his own party wouldn't take a chance at shooting? Joining us now is Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary for the Biden administration. She is also the host of an upcoming show on Peacock. Jen, thanks for being here. Uh, How does this quite a rundown of everything? I I
2: think you scared me,
1: too. (laughs) When the New York Times is basically saying stuff cash under your mattress because you don't know what's going to happen, I think we should all be alarmed. This is the United States of America in 2023, and literally no one knows how this ends. You know, I guess when you look at the tea leaves, when you look at the behavior of House Republicans, uh, first of all, do you think Kevin McCarthy is going to make it out of here still holding the speaker's gavel?
2: Probably not, Alex. I mean, Kevin McCarthy. First of all, I think it's important people to understand he's not a longtime opponent of raising the debt limit. And he raised it. He voted to raise it three times during the Trump administration. The debt limit has been raised 49 times under Republican presidents. This has been historically, until the examples you just gave in 2011 and 2013, something just that just happened, because Democrats and Republicans didn't want to wreck the, the economy, even when they had moments of disagreement. But I think it's also important to note that the reason why McCarthy is so vague right now is, as you just alluded to, he really doesn't have a plan on getting out of this. He, plan- he promised spending cuts uh, to the right-wing uh, circus in his party, but those spending cuts he doesn't even have the votes for, because they're all terrible, terrible options. You know, Jen, I'm
1: reminded that uh, of last week, way back when it was last week or the week before, whenever the speaker's uh, contest was in full, uh, uh, the full fever was breaking around Kevin McCarthy, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's like Republicans look on at the raucous wing of their party and they, they, it's a mix of kind of incredulity and indignation, like, oh, you you crazy people, how did it all get so insane? But like, this is how it got so insane. Mitch McConnell, who's like the establishment figure, the guy that understands how it's all supposed to work, decided, made a very calculated decision in 2011. We're going to take the full faith and credit of the United States hostage. And once you cross that Rubicon, can you really be that surprised that now you have a wing of the party that's ready to actually go off the cliff?
2: No, because they made it um, uh, something that others would do in the future, as you just said. So, that is one of the reasons—and I've talked to officials at the White House, my former colleagues, about this—why they do not want to make this a negotiation. Because once you make it a negotiation, like it was in 2011, the markets and the economy gets even scared about the uncertainty. That's what led to the credit rating being downgraded. That's what can lead to people's retirement accounts uh, being diminished. And so, they— want to go back, as most sane people do, to the period of time when this was just raised, as it has been dozens and dozens of times in history. But the the group of people in the party who seem to be controlling Kevin McCarthy's agenda you know they don't they they like the chaos the chaos for them is attention the chaos for them is fundraising and so there's not an incentive to them crazy enough to not make this a chaotic uh, hurdling toward uncertainty around the debt limit so but then how does the white house play this because it's one thing when the
1: the white house can sit back and look disgustedly at what's happening in the lower chamber when it's a, an election for speaker of the house right let yeah. republicans camelize themselves let them let this circus continue For as many days as it needs to. But it's another thing when the circus is centrally about the full faith and credit of the United States. And there are real world implications in terms of how much it costs the U.S. economy, what it does to people's retirement accounts, the jobs that are lost. So how does the White House play this and can they just let Republicans basically circle up in a firing squad shooting at each other?
2: Well, look, I know that President Biden sees the Senate and the House differently, maybe because he was in the Senate for so long. But it was Mitch McConnell, as much as he was a completely irresponsible actor back in 2011, who pulled together a number of Republicans in 2021 to raise the debt limit. Now, since that time, Donald Trump has attacked him and it's become more of a hobby horse of the right wing. We'll see. But Democrats still control the Senate. So their focus is really on the House and smoking out Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy has said he wants to negotiate. That's not a good idea, because that creates uncertainty. But what's important here is to to know, and what the White House is really going to keep pushing for publicly, I would uh, expect—and if you're sitting in a White House right now, you're strategically trying to figure out how to do this to put the pressure on Republicans—is what exactly they want to cut. Because when people hear discretionary spending, most people don't know exactly what that means. What that means is either cutting the military budget, which Republicans do not want to do, and— most in his caucus will not want to carve out, or it means cutting domestic programs. Do they want to cut veterans' benefits? Do they want to cut housing? Do they want to cut health care? Or the biggies—and this is really the only way to do the cuts that they, they want to cut or the size of them—is Social Security, Medicare or Medicaid, those entitlement programs. So what the White House is going to do is they're going to keep putting public pressure on they're not going to negotiate, and they're going to try to smoke out exactly what Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are proposing to cut.
1: I guess I wonder, Jen, from a sort of communications perspective, does the fact that the raucous Republican caucus, does the fact that they are positioning this as a negotiation matter? I say that because the the more often and the louder they say this is a negotiation, does that in some people's minds, maybe moderates and independents, somehow shift some part of the insanity onto Democrats, right? The Republicans say, oh, they won't negotiate with us. They won't negotiate with us. And then if we do go off the cliff or we do lose jobs and there is economic turmoil, even if we don't go off the cliff, does President Biden then shoulder some of the blame for all of this?
2: Well, I think the answer to that question is yes, and that's why Kevin McCarthy went out and sounded kind of sane a couple of days ago when he said, I just want to have a conversation. I just want to have a negotiation. The, the, what is so important for the White House to do—and they're doing this, um, and this is what you're strategically thinking about in a White House right now—is how to make the details clear to the public, because the devil is in the details here. This is—there's not just some pool of money that you can cut in the budget. Everything has impacts. And that's why the White House has started to talk more specifically, and Democrats are talking more specifically, about how entitlement cuts—Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid—those could be on the chopping block. And doing that is very, very unpopular, including among independents and Republicans. But, yes, if it's just a generic, let's have a chat, that is harder for the for the White House than it is if it's a specific discussion or a specific public discussion about what they're trying to do is cut your Social Security that
1: transparency is going to be really key in all of this. And also a reminder that barreling towards economic calamity is the outcome that Republicans are setting the country on a course for. Jen Saki, former White House press secretary for the Biden administration, host of an upcoming show on Peacock, and one of my friends. Jen, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. We have much more ahead this hour after the Supreme Court's draft opinion of the ruling that would overturn abortion rights. After that leak, the court announced an investigation to figure out who leaked the opinion to the press. Now, that investigation is basically complete. What did it find? And an inside look into the White House strategy in handling the classified documents found at President Biden's private office and home. The Washington Post's Carol Letting is bylined on that very story, and she joins me coming up next. Stay with us.
0: We're fully cooperating, looking forward
1: to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're
4: doing. There's no there there.
1: There's no there there. That was President Biden's response this evening to questions about the classified documents found at his D.C. office and Delaware home. Now, while there are several major differences between Biden's predicament and Trump's, such as the clear evidence of obstructive behavior in Trump's case and the seeming respective lack of obstruction in Biden's case, one of the major questions surrounding the president's current mess is administ- his administration's transparency and its communication with the public. The public only learned of the classified documents when CBS News broke the story last week, even though the documents were first discovered on November 2nd, just six days before the midterms and months after the papers were first found. The administration released a statement Confirming the news after the CBS report broke. But a few days later, we learned that more documents had been found at the president's home in Wilmington, and those documents were found on December 20th. Now, the White House did not share that information in their first comments to the press and thus the criticisms about transparency. But today, The Washington Post published a detailed inside look at how the White House navigated or at least tried to navigate these discoveries. And this reporting offers an account of the administration's strategy in all of this. Here it is. Early on, Biden's attorneys and Justice Department investigators both thought they had a shared understanding about keeping the matter quiet, but they had very different reasons. The White House was hoping for a speedy inquiry that would find no intentional mishandling of the documents, planning to disclose the matter only after justice issued it's all clear. Federal investigators, for their part, typically try to avoid complicating any probe with a media-feeding frenzy. As time went on, it became clear that the White House and the DOJ were not exactly on the same page, particularly when Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the appointment of a special counsel to investigate Biden's retention of documents. Quote, Biden's aides sought to follow the Justice Department's guidance, heeding its protocols for conducting searches and reporting additional discoveries, said two people familiar with the probe. But... Some at the White House remain furious at Garland and other Justice Department officials, saying the attorney general named a special counsel to pursue Biden even after they did everything his department asked. Joining us now is Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. And one of the reporters on this deep dive into the White House is thinking, Carol, thanks for joining me. When you read this accounting, it explains a lot, at least, you know, from the White House perspective, about why there wasn't more transparency, why there wasn't more communication. And it seems like the Biden administration was trying to be very deferential to the DOJ and very much follow the letter of the script they thought they were both reading from. Was there a point at which the DOJ lost confidence in the Biden administration? I mean, what happened that made the two paths diverge?
4: Alex, I'm so glad you asked this because we have no indication, no evidence that the Department of Justice grew frustrated with Team Biden, grew worried about the degree to which they cooperating. None. We have no indicia of that. What we do have is a recommendation that was kept secret by the federal prosecutor who was leading this review of the handling of these documents and how in the heck they got from the vice president's government offices and and home to places that weren't secured. That person, John Lausch, recommended in the first week of January the appointment of a special counsel, just as he was about to leave the department. There's no indication to us here at The Post, the team that worked on this, that Lausch recommended it out of some concern or fear that he wasn't getting all the answers he needed to. And in fact, I think what our story discovered is from the perspective of both the Department of Justice and Biden's personal attorneys, they were keeping this thing low. They were staying under the radar for different reasons, as you spelled out. And they both, we understand from sources on both sides, They both believed the Biden administration was doing things that needed to be done, reporting voluntarily the finding of classified records, following the Department of Justice's instructions and protocols for how to search locations later, and how to report what they found, for example, after they discovered some more classified documents from Biden's vice presidency in Biden's personal home and garage in Wilmington. So, I think everybody needs to kind of take a a breather about this idea that the special counsel was appointed because there was something funny or rotten in Denmark. In fact, it's very plausible to me that the, and we have some people who have told us this, not to the degree that I think we can say it's a fact, but we've had people tell us and I think it is plausible, that the special counsel was appointed by Garland because Merrick Garland is extremely sensitive to the notion that he needed a special counsel to investigate a former president, and he probably needed one to investigate the documents handled and and retained by a current president, both of whom who appear ready to be in a. a, a a major contest to, ru- to run for president again against I mean, each other. I that, mean,
1: that's quite a concession to optics, Merrick Garland. I mean, you, in the detailed reporting that you guys offer in this story, at every turn of this investigation, at the w- w- retrieval of documents, whatever you want to call it, the Biden administration is going out of its way to be deferential to the DOG. And at one point, they stop asking, the Biden administration stop as, a, stops asking its own staff how these documents might have gotten misplaced or taken out of the White House or not returned to the proper receptacles, if you will, because it's worried that there will be the impression that the White House is trying to tamper with witnesses, even though that's, that's like a completely plausible line of questioning if you're trying to get to the bottom of this. Every turn, there's a very reasonable sort of explanation for why the White House has behaved the way it has. I would imagine in speaking with members of the Biden White House, there must be just an exorbitant amount of frustration given the scrutiny that they are under and the assignment of the special counsel.
4: Absolutely. There's anger, even though I believe, Alex, and I've talked to some sources inside this team, you know, and I mean writ large, the the team that that is allied with Joe Biden and hopes for his reelection. Those sources have said there are plenty of people that are really angry about the appointment of special counsel, but there are also folks in that same group who recognize that Garland may have felt like his hand was forced and felt like this was a possibility that this might happen strictly because again, the person holding the records in his personal home and holding them in his former office, even though he's surprised by them being discovered, these are both properties controlled by him. And these records were from his vice presidency. I want to emphasize two things though, that you make me think of Alex with your good questions. One is absolutely the, the, Biden team was thinking about the rule book, the law. Let's do everything justice wants, let's get this cleared up, and let's not get in any mess. The way Donald Trump got into a mess by pretending he didn't have any classified documents, by refusing to turn them over, by trying to browbeat his lawyers, some of whom refused to agree, to claim to the Department of Justice falsely that all the classified records have been returned. Biden And his team wanted to avoid the heck out of that. But let's also not pretend they're not political actors. Mm. They did not want this to leak. They did not want any of this information to come out until they had an all clear, which they had good reason to think eventually they would have an all clear because How is this so different? All the ways you've said. Joe Biden's lawyers found this information and that day notified the National Archives. They asked, what can we do? What do you want us to do? The search for records to exhaustively return anything that may be problematic. There is no criminal exposure here that I can see in any of the reporting that we've done for Joe Biden or even for some of the people that packed up the records. Because criminal exposure is when you have intent. And that's not the problem here. You also
1: mentioned—oh, sorry, Carol, to that end. You mentioned that Biden's longtime assistant, Kathy Chung, is worried that she may be one of the reasons these documents were moved into his office, that the vice president, now president, literally may have had nothing to do with any of this.
4: That's right. Now, I want to emphasize, Alex, she has confided to associates she's very worried that essentially she caused— a part of this unnecessary wound for her boss. She is the executive assistant for Joe Biden who helped pack some of these records and ship them to a transition space and then relocate some of these boxes and papers, a mishmash of various political records, um, planning documents, policy documents to the Penn Biden center. She feels that she may be at the root of this and, and is not sure But again, of course, thinks that it is an innocent mistake and it just happens to be costing Joe Biden a lot in political capital right now.
1: Well, we heard the president's response today. There is no there there. This is important reading to potentially back up that assertion. Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for your time tonight and great reporting as always, Carol. Thanks, Alex. Still ahead tonight, one of the figures who tried to help keep Donald Trump in office in 2020 has a new version of events for what really happened in the weeks leading up to the January 6th insurrection. We will tell you all about that. But next, it has been more than eight months since a draft opinion of the Supreme Court's ruling reversing decades of abortion rights since that ruling leaked to the public. And still, after months of investigation, there is no suspect. So how thorough really was that investigation? Stay with us.
3: After
1: May 2nd of last year, protesters took to the streets and to the steps of the Supreme Court to protest a decision that had not technically been made yet. But the whole country already had access to every word of it in print. A draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturning Roe v. Wade had been leaked to and published by Politico. Emotions were high and people were on edge, including the justices of the Supreme Court themselves. Chief Justice John Roberts called the leak a, quote, betrayal of the confidences of the court and tasked the marshal of the court with investigating it. Today, the court announced that the marshal's investigation is essentially over and they still do not know who did it. The court released this statement after months of diligent analysis of forensic evidence and interviews of almost 100 employees. The marshal's team determined that no further investigation was warranted with respect to many of the 82 employees who had access to electronic or hard copies of the draft opinion. The marshal said her team conducted 126 formal interviews of 97 employees and they all denied leaking the draft. While they determined that the court's IT systems were likely not breached, The marshal said that working from home during the pandemic and existing gaps in the court's security policies, quote, created an environment where it was too easy to remove sensitive information from the building and the court's IT networks, increasing the risk of both deliberate and accidental disclosures of court-sensitive information. Although they have no suspect, the marshal's team promises to follow any new information wherever it leads. Investigators continue to review and process some electronic data that has been collected, and a few other inquiries remain pending. To the extent that additional investigation yields new evidence or leads, the investigators will pursue them. Apparently, for good measure, the court asked former Bush administration Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff to conduct a review of the investigation. Chertoff found that it was conducted thoroughly and agreed, quote, at this time, I cannot identify any additional useful investigative measures. I mean, I can. I mean, from what we can glean, the investigators do not appear, we think, to have talked to the justices themselves or to their spouses, and they did not check their electronic communications. So we very much still have a whodunit on our hands and a court that seems to have reached a breaking point that's been catalyzed by this leak. Joining us now is Melissa Murray, professor at New York University School of Law, co-host of the legal podcast, Strict, Strict Scrutiny. And an MSNBC legal analyst, Melissa. The last time we talked, yes, I mean it's ju- it's like it's juicy. What
3: happened? But also, how is this the conclusion of the investigation? Well, I mean, it began with a bang and it's ended with a whimper. whimper. Um, this is truly a whimper. And so, let's first start. The whole idea of having the Marshal Service investigate this league is by itself eyebrow raising. The Marshal Service is part of the court. But it really is there to provide physical security to the justices. It's not like the FBI with a broad investigative remit. So it's unusual that this court, the highest court in the land, with all of the resources of the American government at its disposal, chose to investigate this leak using an arm of the court that probably isn't equipped to do this. And you see in the report how they were ill-equipped. Like They had to consult external um, sources for help with some of the forensic issues. So it's, it's not clear that this was the best use of the marshal's time. And maybe the investigation might have been best done by some other body.
1: Maybe you think it's almost like they
3: didn't want to get to the bottom of it. I mean, who knows? But it is an interesting way to wind all of this up, especially at a time where the court is experiencing its lowest approval ratings among the public in years. So, you know, this is a court where much of the public believes that its work is animated by politics and not law. And here was an opportunity to really investigate and get to the bottom of this and to be transparent with the American public. And instead, we've got more opacity here. We don't know if the justices were interviewed. We don't know anything. Um, We do know that some of those interviews uh, were asked to sign affidavits saying that they had not disclosed the information, that they hadn't been the source of the leak. But then they later had to come back and annotate their affidavits because they realized they had actually discussed the decision and the vote count with their spouses and partners. And so you wonder... Was that widespread? And were other people discussing this with their spouses and partners? And why don't we know that? Well,
1: but also, OK, I mean, maybe it was a, har- oh, I forgot we had two glasses of wine. We were about to watch Game of Thrones. And I just sort of like, you know, forward her the attachment of the Dobbs opinion. I, 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 this is the first time. Well, is the second time, right? Mm. It's the second time a major opinion like this has leaked ahead of the final ruling. And it seems to me not coincidental that both of these opinions are ones that are highly controversial, that curb, uh, well, that are that are not favorable to liberals, progressive Democrats. The first one was apparently leaked by Samuel Alito, the Hobby Lobby decision, and yet <laughs> Samuel Alito, from what we understand, has not been interviewed in all of this. I mean, it's literally like here's a guy who likes to set fire to buildings he's a, a an admitted arsonist but in this latest fi- built building fire we're not going to ask him anything about it how could they not specifically ask the people who have been named in the press in reporting as having an interest in leaking opinions
3: so again this is an epic fail on the part of the Chief Justice John Roberts like you know whether you believe that Justice Alito leaked the Hobby lobby opinion in 2014 whether you believe he is the source of the leak in this opinion we don't know but the question lurks out there because of the reporting by The New York Times, Jody Cantor and Joe Becker earlier this last year had this whole expose on this coordinated campaign of influence at the Supreme Court with Justice Alito and some of the other conservative justices at its center. And it's attached and associated with the leak and Dobbs And you don't talk to the justices and you're not forthcoming with the public about whether or not you talk to the justices. I mean, again, just a really silly unforced error.
1: Well, I mean, unless it wasn't unforced, unless it wasn't unforced. And it sort of does bring to mind the point of this one uh, would think is John Roberts attempt to restore the integrity of the court. And I feel like it's done the opposite. I mean, it's yeah. added another layer of skepticism to whether or not, you know, skepticism about the intentions of the court and how partisan it's become. I mean, not specifying whether or they've not they've talked to the judges is one thing. And then closing the book on it, seemingly, with Michael Chertoff playing this strange advisory role saying,
3: well, nothing to see here, folks. I'm not a detective, but I have plenty of questions. Well, the Michael Chertoff thing is so interesting to me because Michael Chertoff, as you say, is the former secretary of Homeland Security. He has some experience in security breaches. He has a consulting firm and they didn't ask him to conduct an independent investigation investigation. Instead, they just asked him to review this investigation, an investigation which, by their own admission, required some additional expertise because they didn't have it in-house to do it. Why wouldn't you just allow him to do an independent investigation, an external independent investigation, instead of this pro forma report that seems to be like, no, no, it's nothing to see here? So, again, a lot of wasted resources and a lot of wasted capital with the public. I will say there's at least
1: one person who knows— the leak and that person works for Politico. And there yes. are two people bylined on that story that broke. They know the truth. Putting people under the scrutiny of an affidavit, I think is really important because,
3: you know, if you lie, you can be found out. There's someone that yeah. knows the truth in all of this. Well, Politico has been active on this beat this afternoon. I'm The reporter who was one of the reporters who broke the leak initially reported on this conclusion of the investigation, mm. which, you know, You might take it as some high-level trolling from Politico, (laughs) never revealing our sources. Uh, But they must know. They must know at least or have some chain of causation in this league that can eventually get to the person who is the source at the court. And we do know it's at the court. The one thing they've ruled out is that it wasn't Wasn't. an external hack. So no need to look abroad. It wasn't coming from inside the house. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Marshall. Uh, Melissa Murray, professor at New York University School School of Law, host of the legal podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Thank you for your time tonight. I hope the next time you come back here, we can we'll actually know who the leaker was. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Up next, one of the alleged masterminds behind the scheme to keep former President Trump in power in 2020 claims that what everyone else says happened didn't actually happen. Barbara McQuaid joins me to discuss. Stay with us. Two days after the 2020 election, Cleta Mitchell, a far-right lawyer desperate to help Donald Trump overturn the election results, she wrote the following email. John, what would you think of producing a legal memo outlining the constitutional role of state legislators in designating electors? You would be the person to write it and maybe get others to sign it. The John in that email is John Eastman, the quote-unquote constitutional expert who became central to Trump's scheme to hold on to the presidency. We don't know how Eastman replied to that email, but he ultimately wrote two memos outlining a plot to create fake slates of electors in seven swing states and use them to pressure Vice President Pence to certify the election for Trump. In the first memo, written days before January 6th, Eastman wrote, VP Pence, presiding over the joint session, begins to open and count the ballots, starting with Alabama. At the end, he announces that because of the ongoing disputes in seven states, meaning the states with the fake electors, there are no electors that can be deemed validly appointed. That means the total number of electors appointed is now 454. A majority of the electors appointed would therefore be 228. There are, at this point, 232 votes for Trump, 222 votes for Biden. Pence then gavels President Trump as re-elected. We have known about this for some time now, but still, wow. Eastman then wrote a second memo outlining war game scenarios should Pence reject the fake elector plot. Despite all this evidence, and despite what the January 6th committee has uncovered about the plot— John Eastman is now telling the New York Times that he is actually the reason a more perilous outcome didn't happen. Seriously, John Eastman is casting himself as a hero in this story. Mr. Eastman claims that in an Oval Office meeting on January 4th, he helped convince Trump that Pence did not have the power to pick whomever he wanted as president, that his advice was only that Pence should pause the certification of the election, giving legislatures more time to consider fraud allegations in certain states where Mr. Trump had lost. The problem with Eastman's version of events is that it differs greatly from what others are saying, including Vice President Mike Pence. The former VP wrote in an op-ed that Eastman personally told him on January 5th, 2021, to simply reject the rightful electors from those seven swing states. So who do you believe? Next week on January 24th, a hearing will be held in Georgia to determine whether to make public a grand jury report about Trump's efforts to steal the election in that state. A focus of that investigation has been the fake electors plot, and John Eastman is a potential target. Joining us now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Barb, thanks for being here tonight. Let me first get your thoughts on John Eastman's contention that he somehow saved us from more certain peril in all of this.
5: Well, Alex, there is a reason that lawyers often tell their clients when they're under investigation not to say anything out loud uh, because uh, you might say something foolish that can be used against you later. Uh, He took that advice— John Eastman did when he was testifying before the January 6th committee uh, invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination more than 100 times. Uh, But when it didn't count, when he's talking to the press, uh, then he's got a story and he's got an explanation when it matters, when he can be held accountable for his lies he chooses not to answer those questions. So I think that's a tell right there. I also think the fact that this is inconsistent from what we're hearing from Mike Pence, from Pence's aides and from others in the White House uh, means that in the end, I think it's going to be difficult for him to persuade a jury that he's the one telling the truth and everyone else is lying.
3: Why
1: even bother? I mean, do you think it's because he feels the pressure? Do you feel like he believes he's in greater legal peril as time goes on and this is going to somehow convince someone out there? I mean, what's the point of potentially lying to The New York Times at this stage of the game?
5: I don't. I don't know um maybe it is to try out some defenses and see if they fly you know this is a uh, a, a less of a, a of a risky forum to say it in the public domain as opposed to in a court of law and see uh, see how it flies but uh, it's not something I think that any lawyer would advise. I think any lawyer would advise him to keep his mouth shut because when you start to say things in the public domain, um, people who know better may come out and refute you. Um, it also kind of locks you into a corner. Anything you say, even to the New York Times, can be used against you in court. Uh, he could be cross-examined with that. A lawyer could say, uh, is it true that you told the New York Times X, Y, and Z? And it puts him in that awkward position of either having to confirm it or refute it. Now he could invoke the Fifth Amendment again, uh, but I think that it, with the fact that you're talking in one forum and now want to be silent in another can be difficult. There is also the argument, Alex, that he has waived his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination with regard to the things he said to the New York Times, and could be forced to repeat them in court. Um, and we'll see whether he can stand by them when he's under oath.
1: Where do you see Eastman's greatest legal peril? We know that um, he's been drawn into the Fulton County investigation. The FBI sees his phone as part of the DOJ investigation into January 6th. Um, the January 6th committee, of course, itself referred uh, Eastman by name to the DOJ on a range of criminal charges. How do you see I mean, where do you see the biggest threat to him
5: coming from? I think they're both big threats, but it seems that Georgia is the most imminent. Uh, Georgia, for a number of reasons. One is just the aggressiveness of Fannie Willis. Uh, but the other, I think, in that her investigation is a little more constrained. It's a little more finite. She's only looking at the events that occurred in Georgia. I think there is a very strong likelihood that this— grand jury would recommend charges. And if so, he is an instrumental player in all of that. I mean, he was the architect of this plot. And so I think that there is a very strong chance that he could be indicted there and that that could come very quickly. But I don't think that means that's the only place where he faces criminal exposure in the federal investigation uh, I think he can face exposure for his conduct in Georgia and all of these other states where fake electors were solicited. Uh, and that and he is right in the heart of that scheme. You read from that memo. We know what Mike Pence was saying on January 5th, which is very different from what John Eastman is saying. Also, Alex, I'll tell you, the treasure trove of evidence is what's in somebody's phone. People mm. send all kinds of text messages and write notes to themselves. Mm. And that could be very perilous for John Eastman. Former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barb
1: McQuaid. Thanks, as always, Barb. Thanks, Alex. We'll be right back. There is a new allegation about George Santos's mysterious past, and it is chock full of hypocrisy. According to an ex-friend of George Santos's from Brazil, the openly gay New York congressman used to perform in drag back in the day and even had his own drag queen persona named Kitara. Santos, for his part, denies having ever been a drag performer. Now, there is nothing wrong with George Santos or any member of Congress participating in the rich drag, drag tradition or having their own drag persona. But a secret drag past is a problem for anyone who's looking to get ahead in a party that has gone out of its way to attack and vilify and legislate against anyone whose gender presentation does not match their biological sex. Over the past three years, Republicans have zeroed in on drag performers as part of their anti-LGBTQ agenda, blasting them as groomers and pedophiles. Republican Representative Mike Johnson has even introduced federal legislation called the Stop Sexualization of Children Act which specifically targets drag queen story hours, which are public events where drag performers volunteer to read children's books to kids in local community spaces. And George Santos himself has been a full-fledged supporter of the anti-drag panic. He's endorsed Ron DeSantis' Don't Say Gay Bill, which specifically targets drag performers as part of its broader anti-LGBTQ agenda. And in an interview last year with the Brazilian news outlet, Santos promoted his party's new favorite flavor of moral outrage by falsely claiming, quote, there are a total of 300 drag shows per day in New York City schools. Um, no, they're not. At this point, we are well beyond hoping that George Santos is going to come clean about anything in his past. Maybe the best we can hope for at this stage is that Katara will make her own triumphant return to take a stand for drag queens within the Republican Party. I know a certain former New York City Republican who would make an excellent drag mother.
4: Maybe you could tell me what you think of this set. Hmm, I like that.
1: That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.